where John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, records for us the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We're going to look at just uh, three verses, verses 28 through 30 uh, this morning. This is the most solemn and holy of all sacred Scripture. The cross stands at the center of the Bible, at the center of history, and the center of God's saving plan. So we pause this morning and focus our attention upon the cross. We stop and survey the sacred event when the Lord of glory, the incarnate Son of God, is put to death by the hands of wicked and sinful men. We remember the significance of that event for the world. And more importantly, we take note of its significance for each one of us here this morning. There is no one indifferent and unaffected by this cross, for it divides all humanity. The response one has to this cross places you in one of two classes. For one, the cross is the power and wisdom of God, and for the other, it's a stumbling block and foolishness. The former cling to the cross. The latter. The cross separates and divides, and we need to apprehend the significance of the cross for each one of our own hearts and for each one of our own lives. Read with me then. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We have in these verses two of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, with which we're most familiar Uh, Around the time of Good Friday, many churches have services where the seven sayings are preached on, so they're quite familiar and quite uh, commonly acknowledged. That's where most attention is spent. But the central element of major significance that John wants you to see here are not Jesus' words from the cross, but the jar of sour wine. That is John's focus, and it'll be ours this morning. What is this cup of wine? What is the significance for you? Most importantly, must you drink a cup as Jesus did? John's gospel, for those that have studied it, is a masterful, um, at once it's the most simple and yet the most profound gospel. And for those that have studied it, know that John is a master of detail. Every word, every item is important. And here, this jar or this cup full of sour wine is mentioned, and yet it's not found in the other Gospels. It's not incidental. It's providentially placed here, and it is that upon which you and I are intended to focus. John wants you to focus on it, tells you it's important. Both sayings here, the saying in verse 28 and the saying in verse 30, have it as its focus or its reference point. 
Verse 28, look at the text. The cup meets Jesus' thirst. And yet, it is not finished, verse 30, until he has drank the cup. The two verses, if you will, form a frame. And just like the frame on a picture or a painting highlight, not the frame, but the painting, so also the verses highlight for us this cup of wine that John wants you to focus on. John is at pains throughout the narrative to convey to us that what is happening here in the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture. Look at the surrounding verses. Verse 24. <clears throat> this was to fulfill the Scripture. Verse 28, we already noted, to fulfill the Scripture. Uh, also in verse 36. My Bible, you got to turn the page. Verse 36, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And verse 37, and again, another Scripture says, Christ's death is what the prophets of the Old Testament foretold about God's plan of salvation. The reference in verse 28, which was the first verse in the text we read, <clears throat> I thirst, is a reference to Psalm 69 and verse 21. And if you're a very good student of the Bible, you'll immediately recognize that Psalm 69 is an, is an imprecatory psalm. That is, a psalm which is calling down God's curse on the enemies of His people. And yet here, it has reference to Jesus. Scripture is being fulfilled, yes, but much more. The entirety of Jesus' crucifixion is described by Jesus Himself as a cup which He must drink. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying to the Father? He says, Father, if it may be, take this cup from me. You remember when the disciples' uh, mother wanted one to be on the right and the other to be on the left? And Jesus' response was, can you drink the cup which I must drink? Referring to his death. In John 18, look at verse 11. I'd see another reference to this. Put your sword back into its sheep. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. He constantly is referring to his upcoming death as a cup which he must drink. And here in verse 19 and chapter 19, we come upon the cup which he must drink. You see, Jesus is conveying much deeper significance for you and me here. And two things will help you grasp the significance of this cup full of wine. The first is chemistry. Now, if you're a student in high school and you're taking chemistry, don't worry. I didn't pass chemistry in school, so I'm not going to get into depth or detail here. Suffice it to say that wine is made by introducing yeast into a liquid with sugar. And sugar is chemically uh, consumed, and the product is 60% alcohol. Fifth, and uh, the remaining percentage is carbon dioxide. And yet in air, if you've ever opened a bottle of wine and left it uncorked until your next meal or something, your next time you have guests over, you'll see that that wine has soured. It becomes bitter to the taste because there are microbes in the air which uh, make alcohol uh, turn to vinegar. 
sour wine, bitter to taste. That's what we see in verse 29. The second thing that helps us understand the significance of this is the Old Testament imagery of a cup of sour wine. A cup of wine which is filled with the wrath of God. God is signifying here his hatred of sin, his utter detestation, righteous indignation, and the fury of his anger in that cup of wine of the wrath of God against sin. Now, boys and girls, don't mistake God's wrath for like when mom or dad lose their temper. It's God's wrath is not capricious. He doesn't fly off the handle. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. It is righteous anger, not lost temper. It is not arbitrary or capricious, but it is a creation, a a, a perfection against, um, against perversity. And I'd like you to look with me so that you understand this Old Testament imagery. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just follow along in the Scriptures so you get a grasp of what is being conveyed here. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 33. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed, uh, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. By the way, you may know that this is the verse upon which the most famous sermon preached in the United States of America was based. Their foot shall slide in due time. It was Jonathan Edwards' sermon that brought about revival. It was based on this text. Look at Psalm 60. Turn to the Psalms. Look at Psalm 60 for another reference to this cup of wine of the wrath of God. Psalm 60 and verse 3. You have made your people. Uh, you have made your people see hard things, and you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Psalm 75, verse 8. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Look at Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 9 and 10. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. Look at Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. 
Jeremiah chapter 25, we'll skip that. Look at Ezekiel chapter 23, last one I'll have you look at. Ezekiel chapter 23. Fifteen times in the prophets alone, this cup is referenced. The cup of the wine of the wrath of God. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 31. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Fifteen times in the prophets alone. The cup of the wine of the wrath of God is mentioned. Is it any wonder that Jesus in the garden three times asks, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me? How dreadful the thought must have been in that night in the garden. So intense, Luke tells us, the physician, that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Like drawing near to a flaming furnace or to a fireplace in your home, the closer you get to it, the intensity of the flames grows and grows and is more intense. So also as Jesus gets closer to the cross, the intensity of what he will undergo on that cross weighs down upon him. This is what that cup held a cup of sour wine by which John intends for you to recall the significance of the cup of the wine of the wrath of God against sin. Jesus thirsts, drinks the cup, then and only then is it finished. But now... You should be asking yourself the question, hold on, why is Jesus drinking the cup? He's not a sinner. He's without sin. He's the sinless son. He's the perfectly obedient one, the only human being who ever perfectly obeyed every wish, every will, every jot and tittle of every law. Why is he drinking the cup? For that, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul, reflecting on the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the drinking of that cup, again, inspired by the Spirit, provides for us an inspired interpretation of what is going on. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. This is the best commentary as Scripture interprets Scripture for us. Verse 25, whom God, talking about Jesus, verse 24, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, boys and girls, that's a big word. I don't want you to be put off by it, though, all right? This is a very important word in the Bible, so as you grow and as you learn and as you study the Bible and as you are catechized and as you go to school, you should know this word. It's very important. Propitiation, though it's a big word and it may not be one that you've heard a lot, all right? It's very important because it means to turn aside the wrath of God against sin. So note what Paul is saying here. Whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Look, next sentence. This was to show or to demonstrate God's righteousness or in His, or his justice, if you will, because in his, in his divine forbearance, He had passed over sins. This takes us to the heart and the focus of the biblical message. It takes us to the heart and focus of the gospel itself. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, Paul says, is demonstrating. He's presented as a sacrifice of propitiation by the shedding of His blood, if you will, by the drinking of the cup of the wine of God's wrath. The wrath of God against sin is turned away, is taken away. He's averting God's anger by offering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ which covers all the sins of all His people. And His drinking the cup is for them so that they may drink the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation, because He has pacified the wrath of God on that cross by drinking that cup. So it's a demonstration. It's a demonstration of God's justice. Why? Because as you know, the wages of sin is death. And the soul that sins, it must die. Isn't that what was told to Adam and Eve in the garden? The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey me, you must die. And so we all inherit Adam's sin. And we all disregard and disobey God. And the wages of your sin and my sin is death. And the soul that sins, it must die. Sin must be punished. God cannot and does not grade on a curve. God cannot and does not look down and say, well, you tried your best. God cannot and does not give brownie points for anything that you do or for anything that you are. No, for God to be just, sin must be punished. And don't you see what Paul is saying? God punishes His Son. God satisfies the demands of His justice Himself by drinking the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And there's lessons there, my friends. Lessons for, to tell us how much God hates sin. Oh, Christian, it's the punishment for your sins in that cup. It's the punishment for my sins in that cup. Note, note if you will, the cost of your sin. Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, die for me? Oh, how you and I should hate sin. Sin. 
survey that cross, whenever temptation arises, the temptation to lust, the temptation to envy, the temptation to gossip, the temptation to be covetous, the temptation to be angry, gaze, survey that cross, look, look at what that sin cost, and let the cross melt your hard heart to turn from sin. In that cup was all God's wrath. And in Christ's drinking it, God's justice is perfectly, fully satisfied. The words, it is finished, translated literally means paid in full. The debts are paid. You're free. And when you do sin, as you and I fall and fail, often remember, don't stay away. In all my years of ministry, I think this is probably the most common pastoral problem I hear and see and have to deal with in people who fall into sin, who fall into besetting sin. Like Adam and Eve, they hide. They run away from God. When people stop attending church, when people stop reading their Bible, when people stop associating with Christians, the antenna of the pastor start going, oh, oh, let me explore. There must be something going on. And more often than not, yes, there's sin. And what's the response? To run and hide. To flee from God. But don't you see? When you sin... You're to go to God, not run away from Him. What does John say in his letter? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney before the bar of God's justice, Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. So important. Don't stay away. Don't run. Come to the cross. Repent and leave your sins there. We sang, did we not? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away washed all my sins away. Every penalty for every sin was in that cup. How great a salvation. How great a Savior. Another hymn I love says, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross He was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I am free. All because there He was wounded for me. Oh, it's a demonstration of God's justice. But look at verse 26 in Romans 3. It's a demonstration of God's love as well. 
It was to show his righteousness, his justice at the present time, so that he might be just, punish sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Without sacrificing his justice, he can love, he can be merciful. That's the great difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says you must do something in order to placate God, or you must do something in order to gain His favor, or you must do something in order to be accepted by Him, or there's something you must do in order to get to heaven or whatever it is. Christianity says God has done it for you. How foolish to try and do it yourself. Just turn from sin and trust in Jesus who has drunk the cup on behalf of all who believe. He sent His Son and presented Him as a sacrifice of propitiation. John Murray, professor gone to be with the Lord, professor at Westminster said, the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of His wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should provide for the removal of his wrath. Truly amazing love. Amazing grace. God in love does not count my sins against me, but against his son. And his son's perfect obedience is mine by faith. Maybe you've heard, maybe you've taught in Sunday school or some other class, justified, justification. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, true enough, but not enough. Our catechism gets it right. When it says, oh, no, 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 it's not only just as if you had never sinned. But Christ's perfect obedience, God sees you as, as if you had been as perfectly obedient as he was obedient for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that ought to knock your socks off. And if it doesn't, I encourage you to get alone with God until it does knock your socks off. It's too good to be true. I tell people this in New York. I had somebody sitting across from me in the bagel store, and that's what I told him. I said, this is what Christ does for sinners. He said, no. No, it's too good to be true. That can't be true. That's the gospel, my friend. That's good news. That's the amazing love and amazing grace of God, Jesus Christ. God looks on his own with nothing but love. And if Christ is drunk to the dregs, the penalty for my sins, if He loves me just as He loved Jesus Christ, then how great should your love be for Him? Is there anything He asks? Anything He requires that's too much? No. Nothing. And of course, if you have found the remedy for a sin-sick soul, 
If you've found peace with God, reconciliation, forgiveness, cleansing, washing, renewal, blessing, how can you keep it to yourself? If you saw someone walking to the edge of a cliff, would you just say, well, you know, his life not going to interfere. Wouldn't you run and drag them back from there? No, 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 no. You'll die if you fall off that cliff. Men and women will die for all eternity unless they hear the message which has saved you. We need to tell sinners there's a fountain filled with blood to cure their sin-sick soul. But as we come to a conclusion this morning, I'd ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 14 because you see, there's a cup that remains. Revelation chapter 14. Verse 9, And an other angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. What an incongruous picture is portrayed here. That those who suffer the eternal horrors of hell will do so in the presence of the Lamb who could have saved them. They will suffer in the presence of Jesus Christ who could have redeemed them, who could have rescued them, who could have spared them the horrors of the cup of the wine of God's wrath. And so Scripture sets before us this day two cups. The cup of God's blessing, the cup of salvation, the cup of the new covenant in His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, or the cup of His wrath. God sets before Life, you, life and death. And as a minister of this glorious gospel, I beseech you, as Moses did so long ago, choose life. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father,
We're so thankful for Jesus. Father, even a momentary acknowledgement of what each and every one of our sins deserves humbles us to the dust. That you have not counted sins against us, but against your Son. Oh, Father, we love you. Oh, Jesus, we love you and thank you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fan into a flame our devotion, our commitment, our discipleship, and use us, use us, where we live, work, study, and play, to tell others where that fountain filled with blood may be found. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.